This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And uh, we're talking this week about Jeopardy episodes from the week of April 19 through 23. And uh, Jeopardy's announced the slate of guest hosts, I think through the rest of the season. Mm -hmm. Finally, finally, we will be having LeVar Burton as Jeopardy guest host uh, just for one week. Um, He'll be on in late July. But we've got a whole bunch of whole bunch of folks we do on yeah right right now we're uh we're in anderson cooperville Mm -hmm. following him will be bill whitaker and then mayan bialik and savannah guthrie after that Mm -hmm. and then it just keeps going george stephanopoulos robin roberts sanjay gupta is uh in between savannah guthrie yeah yeah sanjay gupta Uh, i'm not looking at it necessarily in order uh okay gotcha david faber joe buck which is a lot, and it's really it's interesting to me, like saying like, oh, you know, they're they're going farther into the summer because they spent two weeks of reruns in in December when Alex passed that they're not, you know, they don't normally do. But this seems like a lot more than two weeks to me. Yeah, into what was normally the hiatus. Mm-hmm. Which I I'm fine with. The more Jeopardy, the better. But yep. it's just curious to me that that's. Uh, the way this is going. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I hadn't quite registered that they were going that late into the summer. I also, like, I think a year and a half ago, I would have been like, CNN chief medical correspondent, what? And, like, when I when I was <laughs> scrolling through, like, LeVar Burton stood out to me as, like, a very familiar face. Um, and then I was like, oh, that guy. Who's that? Oh, I know that guy. That's the mm-hmm. guy who talks to me about the coronavirus. That's right. That's yeah. right. Oh, I forgot. Oh, there's also Buzzy Cohen. Right, because he's doing the the Tournament Mm -hmm. of Champions. That'll be in May. Mm -hmm. Buzzy Cohen's hosting the Tournament of Champions. I'm super excited about that. I believe they've already recorded. Mm -hmm. They have, yep. It was last week, I think, Mm -hmm. or the week before. I am looking forward to the guest host we have. I know there are some there there are a number of people who are like, oh, enough with this, you know, carousel of hosts. I I kind of like it. It yeah. I mean, to to me, in a way, it's a it's an opportunity to really like give space after Alex before mm-hmm. before there is someone permanent, you know? Mm-hmm. I I think it's I think it's a good thing cuz it I think it would be I think it would be weird and I think it would be hard if they after Alex's last episode aired they were like here's a new host. Yeah. Maybe keep they'll going. be on for 35 more years. Yeah. Right. No, uh... and, and, yeah, so I like it. I think for the most part, they're doing a really good job. I have, mm-hmm. especially this week, I think Anderson Cooper has probably done the best of any of them so far, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I think it sort of speaks to Jeopardy's role in the culture that we've got all of these kind of journalists and anchors, you know, that the Jeopardy is a game show, right? And I think mm-hmm. that Alex came to Jeopardy as, you know, kind of more of an entertainer you know, Um, and really established the show as kind of this American institution that like, you know, the people who bring us the news in the morning and evening are like, oh, yeah, this, you know, this fits with my, you know, with Mm -hmm. with my work. 
Yeah. We haven't mentioned... Apparently, there are a lot of people upset with Joe Buck being chosen as one of them. Yes. I don't know why. If someone could, you know, inform us as to a reason that he is problematic. When I googled Joe Buck controversy, the only thing I could find in, like, dozens of hits was something about him and Troy Aikman being dismissive about, like, you know, a, a, a flyover before a game during the during COVID. And so a number of people were upset that he apparently was disrespecting the military or whatever. I don't I don't think that's the reason that a bunch of Jeopardy people would be like, mm, mm, Joe Buck, really? But maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So if somebody could inform us as to like why that's an issue, if it, you know, and then on the other hand, if it's just that it's because he's like a typically a football sportscaster, like if that's really the problem you have, then you need to get over that. Yeah, I, I am. I am sort of strongly on the record as not knowing about sports stuff. I don't think it's just that he's a sportscaster. I think, but I, I, I don't I would, actually know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's given the kind of the strong reaction I saw. I also. I assume it's more than that. Yeah. I hope it's more than that, because otherwise it's just trivia people being absurdly elitist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. Which never happens. Never happens. Yeah. Um, speaking of people getting in touch with us to tell us stuff we don't know, Lori Lander Goodman reached out to me about uh, something that I said, we don't know what this is. If you know, let us know. Uh, Born Free was huge in the 70s. It was a TV show. Uh, it was... She says, the easy pop culture of my youth. Okay. So, yes, uh, I guess it's not especially documented on Wikipedia, maybe because it's in kind of the the gap of, <laughs> you know, like Wikipedia editors don't know it as part of their own lives, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Thanks, Lori, though. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Lori. Good looking out. All right. Should we talk about the Jeopardy episodes? Yeah, I, I guess that's why we're here. Yeah. All right. So on Monday, April 19th, uh, this is the first game with Anderson Cooper as guest host. And uh, for his stint as guest host, Jeopardy will give a donation matching the the total winnings across the three players. So the, you know, the champions winnings plus 3000 to Hospital Albert Schweitzer in Haiti, mm. um, which I don't know anything about that, but. Sounds like a worthy cause. And we have the contestants, Mike Nelson, an actor originally from Chesterton, Indiana. Donna Voyer, a writer and retired teacher from Willowbrook, Illinois. And Patrick Hume, a project manager originally from Stoneham, Massachusetts, whose three-day cash winnings total 60500 And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Mixin' with Nixon, Sci-Fi Movie by Quote, Modern Kitchen Appliances, Self-Help Yourself, Ten-Letter Words, and MC in quotation marks. We had a tough miss in the uh, Ten-Letter Words category at the very end of the round, so this is jumping ahead a little bit. The $1,000 level, it was the last pick. The clue is this object is formed by the gradual deposit of calcite, and they showed a picture. Mike rang in and said, what is a stalactite, which was ruled incorrect, Donna then presumably just thought, oh, maybe it's the other one. She went for what is a stalagmite, which is definitely incorrect. And Patrick picked it up with what is a stalactite. Got to make sure, you know, with with the pronunciation rules as far as spelling goes, you got to make sure you really lean on that k in stalactite rather than stalagmite. Yes. 
the mnemonic that I learned is the uh, the C in stalactite is because they hang from the ceiling, and that the is, G in stalagmite is because they come up from the ground. That is also what I learned. And yeah, I remember it. There's some there's some mnemonic I've heard other people use about the tight being like they hold tight to the ceiling. Uh, mm. Have to <laughs> they have to hold on tight. Um, yeah. So. If you can combine those, then you've you've got the whole word. <laughs> you have a very long-winded way of explaining how you remember it. <laughs> yep. Yes, indeed. Indeed. In the self-help yourself category at the eight hundred dollar level, we we kind of raised my blood pressure with uh, <laughs> with the clue. Shh. Rhonda Byrne told this title to the world in two thousand six, saying it is the law of attraction. But let's just keep that between us. That is the secret. Not my favorite self-help approach. Yeah. If I understand correctly, the secret is basically like you just sort of assert that the things you want will come to you and then they do. You got to put it out there in the universe. (laughs) You got to manifest that for yourself. Yeah. (laughs) I saw a meme a while back that said, did you manifest it or is it your privilege? Uh, Which (laughs) is one of my problems with the secret. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also want to know, I don't have an air fryer. I'm sure they're lovely appliances. I know people who enjoy their air fryers, um, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's a misnomer. The clue, This was in the modern kitchen appliances at the $200 level. The clue there was instead of the deep type of this device, which uses hot oil, try the air type, which uses convection heating. And Patrick got that one. It's an air fryer. Like the that uses convection heating points to the fact that we call it an air fryer, but it's not frying things at all. It's just, it's just baking them. It's a particular kind of baking that sort of crisps the outside. Don't you do this, Emily. My air fryer is the greatest thing I have in my home. Don't, don't try to spoil this for me. I'm just saying the things that come out of there are not fried. That's, that's this is just to say, Emily, (laughs) this is just to say, I'm sorry. I I, I, I ruined Forgive me, I ruined your air fryer (laughs) experience. Yeah. Ugh, unbelievable. Sorry. No, it's 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 uh it's convection convection baking i think yeah anyway yeah you know what i don't even care uh daily double number one is in the sci-fi movie by <laughs> quote category it's at the 800 dollars level pick number five mike finds it uh he is how long are you gonna be mad about the air fryer the eight, forever emily <laughs> this one's gonna take a while okay uh he wagers 800. He's in the lead. Don only has 600, and Patrick has not gotten in yet. The clue is 1968. You know what they say, human see, human do. And he gets that correct with, uh, what is the Planet of the Apes? So he doubles up there. Yes, indeed. So, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Patrick is at 3,200, Don is at 4,400, and Mike is at 5,400. Uh, and we get the double Jeopardy categories, Ancient Cities, Fiction, the human body, wet words, organizations, and MC, now referring to a master of ceremonies. Jeopardy really missed an incredible opportunity to make so many people uncomfortable in that wet words category. They didn't include moist. 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 They did not include it. All right, so you've gotten back at me for... <laughs> talking smack about your air fryer yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Don't worry. I'm not somebody who cares that much about the word moist, but still. (laughs) I won't tell the air fryer what you said. (laughs) I might get an air fryer. I just, you know, it's uh, all right. I'm not going to come back to the air fryer thing. I thought you were going to say they'd missed an opportunity to have the MC category be about like, like rappers as opposed I mean, to that too. But yeah, I thought that that category is fine. Yeah. No, agreed. I did not know what plexus meant until we got to that $400 level of the human body. Um, I had heard the phrase solar plexus, and so mm. I was able to get it. The clue was, it's a network of blood vessels or nerves like the solar one located behind the stomach. And so I guess the solar plexus is a network of blood vessels or nerves. Now we know. Yeah, now we know. Uh, Donna got that one. Daily Double number two comes up in the human body category at the $1,200 level, and Mike finds this one. He has 9400 at this point, and Patrick and Donna are tied at 7200 he wagers 2,000 of it. So if he misses, he will still be in a lead, albeit a slim one. And he gets the clue. Hair and fingernails are largely made up of this tough protein that also composes an animal's horns and hooves. Mike knows that that's keratin. So he goes up to uh, 11,400. And daily double number three is in the ancient cities category at the $1,200 level. Patrick finds it. Uh, he is up to 10,000. Donna is at 9,600, and Mike is up to 15,800. He wagers 3,000. It's pick number 23. I I think I would have gone for at least a tie with the lead there. But he gets the clue. Now in this country, Persepolis was the capital from which Anderson pronounced it Darius, and I've heard other people pronounce it Darius. However, I also have heard it pronounced Darius. So I feel like I've heard it pronounced Darius. Either Darius or Darius the Great ruled. Mm Mm-hmm. And he gets that correct with what is Iran. So mm-hmm. the old old capital of the Persian Empire. Yes. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Mike is in the lead with 18,600. Patrick has 13,000. Donna has 12,000. So they're all still in it. And we get the final Jeopardy category paintings. And the clue... The New York Times noted balls of orange-yellow light and the town off in the distance from the artist's window in this piece. Donna guesses what is the banquet. Uh, That is incorrect. I'm not sure what painting she's thinking of here. And she has wagered 6,601. So she's trying to get above... Mike's zero wager. So if he if he misses, she will definitely be at least above him. Uh, is what she's what she's looking to do. Um, but that's incorrect. So she drops down. Patrick responds correctly. What is Starry Night? And he has wagered eighteen oh one. I'm not sure what he's what he's heading for there. Lands him at fourteen thousand eight hundred and one. Mike also has the correct response. What is Starry Night? And he has wagered 8,000, um, which is a cover bet and a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with 26,600, Mike is our champion going into Tuesday. Yes, indeed. So on Tuesday, April 20th, we have the contestants Logan Crossley, a law student originally from Plano, Texas. Nina Patel, a marketing manager from Vienna, Virginia. And Mike Nelson, an actor originally from Chesterton, Indiana who just won $26,600. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, planet shaming, international organizations, quotation marks. 
relax, movie to stage, and in the dictionary. They uh, started in the movie to stage category. That was a a pretty good category. I enjoyed it. Um, Yeah. I also got all of them, which I felt pretty good about. Nice. Um, And I felt like it was a a nice connection with uh, Amy Ray's Mm -hmm. deep dive Mm -hmm. on the producers. Yes, indeed. Mm Mm-hmm. The last clue of this round, pick number 30, is in the relaxed category, uh, the $1,000 level. They played a recording and said, let's enjoy this composer's Brandenburg Concerto number six, third movement. Mike rang in in and said, who is Bach? And that's correct. It was ruled correct. I do take issue with, you know, the, the rule on Jeopardy is you give a last name and usually a last name is enough. But my problem there is that J.S. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, was a composer. His son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, was a composer. His son, Johann Christian, was a composer. As well as a number of other Bachs also wrote music, but those, particularly C.P.E. Bach and J.S. Bach, were also very successful as the next generation of composers, you know, in in the early classical period. And so I do take issue with the idea of Bach being acceptable without further specificity. Yes, agreed. Yeah, because it's Especially like, given Jeopardy's penchant for asking people to specify which President Kennedy and that kind of thing. Right. There's in, only in one, been one President Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like there, there is no other President Kennedy. You cannot be mistaking it for someone else. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just... And I understand that J.S. Bach is really the one that anybody... He's that, the main that most one. Pe- that most people know. He's the main one. Easily, like, that's fine. For a show that does require you to be specific when, you know, you're... When it's asking about a specific person, I I do think it needed to be specified. Yeah. Agreed. Daily Double number one comes up in the international organizations category at the $600 level. And Logan finds it. He only has 400 dollars at this point it's the 25th pick mike is at 6200 nina's at 2400 and so logan wagers the maximum a thousand uh great call logan mm-hmm. and uh gets the clue bulgaria and moldova belong to bsec the economic cooperation zone named for this body of water and he correctly responds what is the black sea I guess that was international orgs on purpose because all of them used abbreviations. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Mike is in the lead with 6,400. Nina's at 4,600. Uh, Logan has dropped back down to 400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. History, Asian cities, 17-letter words, books for the Weather Channel, Leading female TV and potpourri with e in quotation marks. It just, I mean, it it feels personal at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had seventeen letter words when the previous game we had ten letter words. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were those were fun fun words. Um, yes. The two thousand dollar clue. Unfortunate miss. Um, related to a word for that little voice telling you right and wrong, it's the quality of being thorough and scrupulous. Nina guessed what is conscientious, but they needed the extra four letters for conscientiousness. Mm-hmm. We had a reference to one of my favorite uh, historically accurate movies, 
uh, in the history category at the $1,600 level. The clue is in 480 BC, the Persian army found out the hard way that this mountain pass was about 50 feet wide at its narrowest. Uh, Mike guessed what is the Khyber Pass, uh, I think, uh, wrong wrong direction? Mm. Uh, maybe from, from there. Uh, but no, that is Thermopylae. Logan got it. And Anderson <laughs> said, yeah, as in the movie 300. <laughs> Everyone's favorite historical drama. <laughs> Now, I, I will say, I do love that movie. Oh, yeah. No, it's a great movie. It's fantastic. It's also, like, it is a bit over the top. But yeah. it, you know, for what it is, it worked really, really well. I mean, clearly Anderson Cooper learned some learned some history. Stuck with him. That's right. That's yeah. right. I'm telling you, Gerard Butler's abs, man. Mm-hmm. I swear, I talk about it, like, every week. Anyway, we got the second Daily Double in the history category. It's right above that at the $1,200 level. Logan found it. He was at 6,400. He'd started making a good move uh, from from way behind. Mike was at 8,000. Nina was at 4,600. And he wagered 2,500. They showed a picture, and he got the clue. Marching to Pretoria was a folk song of this war, and here are British troops doing so in 1900. And he must be a listener, because that's the only way he could have known about the, the Boer War. The only way. The yeah. only way that he got the Boer War. Which actually, I took. I had a pause when I was like, "Oh wait, are they gonna are they gonna be asked to be specific about that?" Because if you recall, there are actually multiple Boer Wars. Yes, but they accepted the Boer War. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it would be more detailed than I expect Jeopardy to be to expect people to know which Boer War. Yeah. And Daily Double number three is in that 17 letter, letter words category at the $1,600 level. And it's the 15th pick. And Nina finds this one. She has $5,800 when she uncovers it to Mike's 6400 and Logan's 13700 And she gets the clue. Critic Roger Fry coined this term for the late 19th century art style of Seurat and Gauguin. She tries what is pointillism that's not correct um Mm -hmm. they're looking for Mm post-impressionism the graph of who uh of of the scores is kind of striking uh logan really took off yeah in the first half of this in the first half of the round and then kind of flatlined and mike and nina climbed in the second half of the round yeah so so by the end uh, Logan is in the lead at 15,300, but Mike is up to 14,000, and Nina's at 8,600. So everyone has a good score by the end, you know, for a while there. Because Logan Logan got clue number, like, 7 through 15 or 14 or whatever. Like, he mm-hmm. got all of them, and it just, like, skyrocketed. So the final Jeopardy category is European tourist attractions, and the clue opened in 1843 it was frequented by Hans Christian Andersen and Walt Disney, who both found inspiration there. And this was a triple stumper, which I totally understand. Um, <laughs> Nina wrote, what is the Brita? Not entirely sure what she was going for. British something, probably. And wagered 8,600, so she dropped to zero. Mike wrote what I thought it was. He wrote, what is Neuschwanstein Castle? Um, I'm pretty sure he misspelled it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was incorrect anyway. He wagered 3,200. And... Logan made a cover bet, 12,701, but got most of the way through what is a Copenhagen aquarium. But they were looking for the Tivoli, Tivoli Gardens. Mm -hmm. There was no way (laughs) 
<laughs> there was no way I was going to get there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I saw the response and I was like, yeah, well, I've heard of that. But yeah, no, I, I would not have gotten there. I thought this was um, a pretty deep cut for yeah. uh, for Final Jeopardy. Yeah, I mean, if, if you made the connection to Copenhagen, because it's in Copenhagen, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I was like, the only thing I could think of as a European landmark that like, at that time, and like for Disney, I was like, Neuschwanstein, I guess, but clearly not. So that means that Mike wins his second game. Yes, indeed. And on Wednesday, April 21, we have the contestants Max Newpen, a tutor from Irvine, California, Ellen Clark, an attorney from Atlanta, Georgia, and Mike Nelson, an actor originally from Chesterton, Indiana, whose two-day cash winnings total of 37400 And we have the Jeopardy round categories, quick Bible books, save our landmarks, say yes to the dressmaker, they named a school for me, coming back to win the game, and D+. plus. Each response will be two words, one with a single, and one with a double D. Their first attempt in that category, they sort of missed the uh, the, the gimmick. Um, yeah. Yeah, the clue, uh, they started at the $400 level with what you're doing to time when waiting patiently, what you're doing on an auction item when you're tired of waiting. Um, so they were looking for biding, and bidding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the contestants had sort of forgotten the gimmick by the time they got there. And Max tried twiddle your thumbs. Um, and then that was incorrect. And nobody ventured a guess. Yeah. But I think they got the rest, uh, most of the rest of them. Yeah. They missed the the $1,000 level. A word found before pool and a use for a big armful of cotton, which is uh, wading and wadding. Mm-hmm. But the rest of them they got. That uh, that quick Bible books category. How'd you feel? I felt I felt bad for the contestants who struggled with it a little bit. I go, I got all of them. Y- yeah, having them condensed that way like actually can make it pretty challenging. Most of them were not correctly responded to. Only the top two were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the at the six hundred dollar level, we had uh, the word is with God. A light shines in the darkness. Jesus resurrects Lazarus. Mm-hmm. And uh, Max tried what is Exodus. I wonder if he saw light shines in the darkness and thought about like, like the pillar of fire. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Exodus is in the Old Testament. So you're not going to find or the Hebrew scriptures or, you know, the, mm. you know, you're not going to find any Jesus in Exodus. Uh, Ellen tried what is Acts of the Apostles. That's also incorrect. They were looking for the gospel according to John. So the word is with God is kind of a famous line from the from the beginning, like the prologue of yeah. the gospel according to John. And we get the daily double uh, there in the at the eight hundred dollar level in that category. Uh, it's the last pick of the round. Ellen is the one who uncovers it. She is at four thousand. Mike is at sixty four hundred. Max is at fourteen hundred. She wages two thousand. Gets a clue. Tribes are counted. Wander in the desert and reach the borders of the promised land. There is really one pointer to that, uh, and she, she kind of snapped off what is Exodus, which t- was also the first thought that came to mind when you think about wandering in the desert. Um, mm-hmm. But it's numbers. The tribes are counted. Right. Yeah, and the, the title numbers is actually a reference to that kind of census portion of the, of the book. Um, mm-hmm. Reaching the borders of the promised land also... If you know that kind of Genesis through through numbers and like 
arguably also Deuteronomy kind of form like a like a narrative sequence Mm. you you might be able to back out that like in Exodus they're not reaching the promised land that's kind of the end of the story I can see where these were tricky yeah I thought they were yeah particularly more more so than perhaps usual yeah yeah so at the end of the Jeopardy round uh, Mike is at 6,400, Alan just dropped 2,000, and Max is at 1,400, and we get the Double Jeopardy categories American History, Newer Words and Phrases, From Page to Stage, Around the Lab, Snooze Clues, and <laughs> Where in the World. Snooze Clues, Snooze Clues. We had from screen to stage, now we have from page to stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, screen to stage was the previous day, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Earlier the week, so. yeah. I enjoyed their faces after the $800 clue was <laughs> a triple stumper. Uh, Ron Chernow's biography of this man was adapted into a 2015 Broadway musical, and they were all like, mm, don't know, haven't heard of it. And uh, it's Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. And they all obviously had heard of the musical and just hadn't made the connection. Right. Um, yeah. We left a lot of clues on this board. Yeah. Yeah, Five high value, clues. high value yeah. ones too. We had a a tricky kind of specific miss at the sixteen hundred dollar level of snooze clues in a poem by Robert Frost. The six words that follow, but I have promises to keep, and and Max tried what is and many miles to go before I sleep. He was so close. It is miles to go before i sleep he added the and many um Mm -hmm. which is which made it incorrect and nobody tried after he missed tough round for for max um he's he was obviously very knowledgeable and had a bunch of kind of close but not quite kinds of misses Mm -hmm. yeah daily double number two comes up as the seventh pick in american history ellen finds it it's at the $1,600 level. She has $4,400 to Mike's $8,800 and Max's $1,400. She wagers $3,000 and gets the clue. The Platt Amendment of 1901 became a treaty between the U.S. and this new country and even became part of its constitution. She tries what is Panama. That's not correct. They're looking for Cuba. Yeah. 1901 is a good, like, kind of Pavlov sort of for Panama. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not not a bad thing to think, but here's Cuba. Yeah. Daily Double number three is the last pick of the round. It's pick number 25. It's at the $800 level in Around the Lab. Mike finds it. He is firmly in control at 16400 Ellen is at 2600 and Max is at minus 1800 He wages just 2400 and he gets a clue. The Illumina Hisec X10 was one of the first devices that could produce a person's complete one of these for under $1,000. And he gets that correct with what is a human genome. Mm-hmm. Which is also what I guessed based on pretty much nothing. <laughs> like, I don't know why, I don't know what it is that points to that, but it, it I don't know, it just seemed to be... I saw uh, the SEQ in HiSec mm. and thought sequencing. Oh, see, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe my subconscious made that connection. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, 
Um, Mike has a lot game. He's at 18,800. Ellen's at 2,600. Um, Max, unfortunately, is in the red. He's at negative 1,800. So he doesn't get to participate in Final Jeopardy, where the category is American business. And the clue is, in 2004, after a century as a household name, its last model rolled off the assembly line in Lansing, Michigan. Ellen tried, what is the town car? Uh, That's not correct. She's wagered 400. And Mike tried, what is Chrysler? Isn't Chrysler still? Chrysler's still around, yeah. Yeah. And he's wagered 1,200. They were looking for Oldsmobile. um, And apparently it was an Alero sedan. So Mike had the lock game. So he is our champion. And, you know, smart of him to, uh, to, to make a small wager. Maybe he didn't feel too enthusiastic about this category so he gets seventeen thousand six hundred for this game yes he does and plays again on thursday that's right and on thursday we have the contestants kelly donahue a bank examiner from winthrop massachusetts monica st dennis a librarian from alexandria virginia and mike nelson an actor originally from chesterton indiana who is now up to fifty five thousand dollars in winnings Mm -hmm. the jeopardy round categories are islands in the group tribute bands Foreign Words and Phrases, What's for Lunch, Five First Dates, and Secrets of the Whales from the series that premiered that day on Disney+. Plus. Mm. And they had clips for all of those. I should get my kids to watch Secrets of the Whales. I bet they'd love it. I hope so. They're never as into nature documentaries as I wish they would be. Because, like, you know, I feel like... If you can get your kids to watch nature documentaries, it's like just guilt-free screen time. Just, mm-hmm. <laughs> just watch them all day. Like, you're learning. Maybe they uh, really like my octopus teacher or whatever that is. Yeah. Have you watched that yet? I have not. It made my wife cry a lot. Okay. Gonna have but to she really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly Donahue's accent sounded like home to me <laughs> i was thinking i had that thought i was like oh man yes yeah <laughs> he's got the accent that's perfect it was it was a wicked awesome accent um especially especially when he got in for the 200 hundred dollar clue and what's for lunch mm-hmm. uh, the clue is bisque de omar creamy french bisque made with these crustaceans of the spiny variety it's a lobster yeah it's a lobster yeah. I didn't know that kismet was a Turkish word. I always thought it was Hebrew or like like Yiddish or something. Yeah. I didn't know it was Turkish. I, I don't think I'd thought about its origin. It totally fit with the Turkish I've seen and heard once I thought about it. But yeah, that was a, that was a fun fact to pick up. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number one comes up in the Islands in the Group category at the $1,000 level. It's the 13th pick, and Mike finds it. He has 2,000 at this point uh, to Monica's 1,200 and Kelly's 2,600, and he wagers 1,000 of it and gets the clue, display your wisdom and name this South Pacific chain that includes Santa Isabel and Vela La Vela. Display your wisdom was the hint here. Mm-hmm. Um, they are alluding to the wisdom of Solomon. Yep. Both an attribute of of the biblical character of Solomon, and also um, a, a book, a biblical book that is in the Catholic Bible. It's in like the wisdom books, but it's not in mm. Protestant versions of the Bible. We can talk about why some other day. Anyway, uh, the Solomon Islands yeah. are uh, are what you're looking for here, but uh, Mike didn't know it. 
So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Mike has the lead with 4,800. Monica and Kelly are tied at 3,800. And I don't remember how they decide who gets to pick first, but Anderson Cooper knew, so that's all. That's fine. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And the double Jeopardy categories are premiere episodes, mythological idioms known by their initials, fictional pickers, rather odd numbers, and a place in history, a in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember how they decide who picks first in Double Jeopardy? If if there's a tie? If there's a tie, yeah. Uh, I think it's whoever was, whoever was in last place at the commercial break. Okay. Before, like, it, yeah. I think. I don't know. That sounds reasonable. I thought known by their initials uh, was a fun gimmick. They gave the full first and middle name mm-hmm. and a little bit about what the person is known for. I, I thought the, the trick here is to convert the first and middle name into the two initials. And then almost immediately, in most cases, you'll, you'll kind of like a last yeah. name will come to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you just let your brain kind of like roll with the two initials and then whatever comes out is probably it. Like yeah. uh, the $1,200 was financier John Pierpont whose company merged with Chase Manhattan. That's J.P. Morgan, right? Mm-hmm. Author Howard Phillips, H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. British soldier Thomas Edward T.E. T. Lawrence. T.E. Lawrence, yep. The contestants did not listen to my uh, British royal history deep dive, or at least not recently enough. The A place in history category, $2,000 level. Aju is a way of ser- is a way to serve meat. This is a similar-sounding region won by France from England in the early 1200s. That's Anjou. Anjou. I talked about the Duke of Anjou quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And how that region played into it. Yes. I thought there was some uh, th- a clever hint in the $1,600 level of A Place in History. Um, the clue there was, legend says Charlemagne caught a fatal fever after bathing in the hot springs at this city in 814. Uh, they put double A's in after and at, which may initially look like a typo, but they were trying to point the contestants toward Aachen, A-A-C-H-E-N. Uh, Kelly knew it, so he got that one. I thought yes. that was that was a fun way to hint an otherwise mm-hmm. pretty tricky clue. Yeah. Yeah, otherwise it's a very specific thing to know, yeah. Daily Double number two is in the mythological idioms category at the $1,200 level. Mike finds it. Uh, He's at 9,600. Monica's at 9,400. And Kelly's at 9,000. It was very tight. Very tight for quite a while. And he wagered 2,500. Got the clue. Meaning a very beautiful woman, this idiom refers to the fleet that went to war after Helen's abduction. And he, he didn't get it. He guessed what is Hellenic... They were looking for a face that launched a thousand ships, which, I mean, I've heard that idiom that came to mind. And and even looking back at the clue, I was like, I don't know. I thought the way the clue was worded was strange to get you to that particular idiom. Yeah. But I don't know how else thinking about it now. I don't know how else he would word it. But I remember like watching it and being like, is it that? I don't think so. Based on like, I don't know. I don't know. Something about the wording of the clue made me think that that wasn't the right way to say it, but... It was. But he dropped into third place at that point. And yes. uh, he remained there. 
Yes. And Daily Double number three is in the premiere episodes category at the $800 level. It's the 27th pick and Kelly finds this one. Uh, Kelly has 13000 at this point. Monica's at 13400 Mike is at 7900 And Kelly wagers $5,000. It's a bold wager. I like it. Mm-hmm. And he gets the clue. In Chicago, a 19th century kaleidoscope was one of the title artifacts on this PBS show's first episode in 1997. I thought this one was pretty gettable. There's a lot of kind of ways you can get in there. Yeah. I mean, it's a second row clue. Yeah. He correctly responds, what is Antiques Roadshow? Which gives him a good lead. Yeah, yeah, he gets some separation there. Yeah. I think I've I've mentioned before, I'll keep mentioning until until people are consistently <laughs> wagering wagering on daily doubles in ways that makes me think that, that they that they know this. That like something about the number value on the clue seems to anchor many players. So mm-hmm. that on the on the lower value clues, they make lower daily double wagers. And on the higher value clues, they make higher daily double wagers. And it should be exactly the opposite, right? Like, <laughs> right. Right. The, the lower the value of the clue is, the more likely you are to get it. Like, if you right. happen to hit a daily double on a top row clue, like, just go all in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely. you know, with some, with some caveats around strategy and, like, you know, if it's, like, a category you know you're terrible in you know yeah and you're like, already in a lock position or whatever like, yeah you could, you like could, the, yeah there are exceptions but in general like if you're taking the value of the clue into consideration in deciding your daily double wager like the lower the the normal value of the clue the higher you want your wager to be mm-hmm. so Kel- kelly did great on that right yeah, like that it's, a, it's an eight, it's an 800 clue where he he wagers 5000 it's a really good solid wager yeah. um yeah. So at the end of the round, Mike is at 9,900, Monica's at 13,400, and Kelly is up at 18,000. And they get the category Continental Geography, and the clue Djibouti, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia make up this region named for its resemblance to a part of a native animal. They all get it correct. Mike writes, What is the Horn of Africa? He wagered 3,501, which puts him a dollar above Monica's current score. Monica wrote, What is the Horn of Africa? She wagered 13,000 a bit bigger than perhaps strategically optimal, but she got it mm-hmm. right, so she moves up. And uh, Kelly also got it right and wagered 8801, which was a cover bet, so he is the new champion. That's right. So on Friday, April 23, we have the contestants Kimberly Stunkel, a field sales manager from Nashville, Tennessee, Dan Singer, a United States Marine from Virginia Beach, Virginia, and Kelly Donahue a bank examiner from Winthrop, Massachusetts, whose one-day cash winnings total $26,801. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the Netherlands, words and phrases, music scales, electoral college alumni, that's big business, and supporting TV characters. Mm-hmm. That electoral college alumni was interesting. I- yes, I, I didn't know what that was going to be, but it was literally people who acted as electors and have cast yes. electoral votes. Mm-hmm. There's a, there are a couple of triple stumpers in that category. Actually, the one at the $1,000 level in Presidential Lottery, this Tales of the South Pacific author wrote about being an elector in the 1968 election. That's James Michener. Nobody, nobody rang in for that. My alma mater, the University of Northern Colorado... The campus library is named after James A. Michener. Hmm. 
uh, because he is connected to the university. Or was, anyway, he's been dead for a while. But his name will always stick with me uh, because of that. I spent yeah. many time. Many, many time. I spent a good amount of time in the Mitchner Library. <laughs> many time. <laughs> I spent many time there. Yes. <laughs> did you have any particular thoughts about the music scales category? Oh, I did. A few different ones. Okay, first off, $200 level. The diatonic scale is widely used in classical music. This composer employed it in the finale of his 1824 Ninth Symphony. That's Beethoven. That's technically true. Yes, he did. I will also say literally every other symphonist of that time period used the diatonic scale because diatonic just means like in the key. It yeah. means related to the tonic. So if you are writing music that is tonal, which everyone was, then the scale you typically used was the diatonic scale. And sometimes you would bring in, you know, color tones or uh, you'd put accidentals on or borrowed chords or something like that. And you you might move away from the home key for a section of the piece. But like the diatonic scale is the scale that yeah. you use when you're in any given key. And so huh. leading to the $400 clue, these two big and little types of scale give contrasting happy and sad feelings to compositions. That's major and minor. If you're in a minor key, your diatonic scale is minor. And if you're mm -hmm. in a major key, your diatonic scale is major. And specifically, the Beethoven clue, the Ninth Symphony, that's a major scale. Not like it's diatonic to the key of C major, whatever it's in. Uh, but it, it just it it was like, huh, that that's it's not wrong, but it's also not really specific enough to be yeah, actually like, right. Like sound is the vibration of air. This composer used it in his ninth, 1824 Ninth Symphony. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Yeah, I mean, literally everyone is like using diatonic did. scales. Yeah. We still do, yeah. mm -hmm. if you write tonal music. Which then leads to the $1,000 clue. There's a half step between every two notes in this colorful scale pioneered by Arnold Schoenberg. That's the chromatic scale, which is the scale that has every pitch in Western, like, standard music. Mm -hmm. But the idea of being pioneered by Arnold Schoenberg, I don't, I, I don't appreciate that terminology. Like... He wrote 12-tone music that specifically used every note in the chromatic scale, yes. And that mm -hmm. was something that was different from before. But, like, look at Flight of the Bumblebee by Rimsky-Korsakov. Right. There's tons of chromatic passages. You can mm -hmm. go back to, like, Jesualdo's madrigals from the Renaissance and you find chromatic passages. It's like, I don't, I don't think that the chromatic scale was pioneered by Arnold Schoenberg. Yeah. 12-tone yeah. technique was, sure. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same thing. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> I had thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, relating to the $800 clue, uh, which was this five note scale pops up pretty much everywhere in Western popular music, sort of like diatonic and major and minor also pop mm -hmm. up pretty much everywhere in Western popular yeah, music. Oh, yeah, uh, I was revisiting today um, Bobby McFerrin's uh, like TED talk. Uh, mm. So, Y'all go look up Bobby McFerrin demonstrates the power of the pentatonic scale. It's mm -hmm. a good three minute video. Mm -hmm. um, you should watch it. Yeah, the pentatonic scale is very good for a variety of reasons. Uh, however, I will also quibble with that a little bit. There are a uh -oh. variety of different pentatonic scales. Ah. All that means is that it is a scale that has five notes per octave, and it can mm. have you can have different intervals between the notes in the scale if they're five per octave then it is technically a pentatonic scale across the board but that is speaking specifically to a particular type of pentatonic scale that we hear quite often yeah 
What I'm gathering is that the writers are really pretty good, but maybe should be running a lot of their stuff past specialists. Right? Because, like... Yeah. Yeah. As a resident music specialist, you're looking at these clues <laughs> and being like, mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, like, when we had uh, Rachel Paterno-Mahler on, she also had sort of, you know like specialist quibbles where she where she often you know she saw like astronomy things and was like well i see what they're going for but Mm -hmm. technically you know the wording isn't really quite right yeah um and i often feel that way about uh religion and other things that i have expertise in Mm -hmm. yeah so what we're saying is jeopardy writers if you want to put us on retainer Mm -hmm. we're here yep i'm here for you daily double number one is in the netherlands at the $400 level. Kelly finds it. It's pick number eight. He's at 800. Dan's at 400. Kimberly's at zero. They all kind of had a rough time getting off the ground in this game. Any wages a maximum of 1,000. He gets the clue located in Amsterdam and begun by Napoleon's brother. It's the National Museum. He guesses what is the Museum Louis, which is hilarious. But that is the Rijksmuseum. <laughs> I went to the Rijksmuseum when we were in Amsterdam, which was actually right after we filmed Jeopardy. Yeah, it's a cool museum. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Kelly and Dan have, have gotten gotten themselves going. Kelly's up to 5,200, Dan's at 3,400, but Kimberly is still at zero. They get the double Jeopardy categories, skyscrapers, authors, three O's, sun, moon, and stars. Mm-hmm. Son spelled like uh, male child, not yes, not S U N. Yeah, uh, the moon clues were all legitimate astronomy, like yeah, about moons clues. But then yeah, but then stars was about like celebrities, like movie stars. Mm-hmm. Daily double number two comes up at the four hundred dollar level of the authors category, and Dan finds this one. It's the eighth pick. He has 5,800 to Kelly's 6,400 and Kimberly's 3,600, and he wagers 2,000. And the clue there is Charles Dickens asked to be buried quietly in Kent, but he ended up in this section of Westminster Abbey. And uh, Dan correctly responds, what is Poet's Corner? Anderson Cooper seemed taken aback that he got it correct. To me, I think maybe that was something Anderson Cooper hadn't encountered before of, or yeah. thought was ob- obscure. Yeah, I'm, but I would think so. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number three is in the moon category. It's at the $800 level. Kelly uncovers it. It's pick number 15. He's at 8,000. Dan is up to 11,000. And Kimberly is back at 3,600. And he makes it a true Daily Double. Woo! Yeah, a lot of the high-value clues are still left on the board, so even if he gets it wrong, there is a chance of coming back. Also, it's an $800-level clue, so it's a good mm-hmm. move. He gets a clue, discovered in 2013 and named for a sea monster, Hippocamp is a tiny moon of this planet. And he gets that correct with, what is Neptune? There, there are a few clues in there, right? Sea monster points you to Neptune, god of the sea. Hippocamp should make you think of, like, if you think of the scientific name, think of horses, which are also... Neptune is the patron god of horses. <laughs> so there are a couple of couple of pointers there. It seemed to me like he kind of logicked it out from one of those pointers mm-hmm. rather than, you know, having a bunch of moons memorized. Yeah, I mean, you could. You could memorize the moons. There's a finite number of them. So Yeah. 
It's a larger finite number than you would think, if oh, I remember yeah. correctly. If, yeah. Just between Jupiter and Saturn, you're, you're yeah, getting up there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Kelly is at 21,200. Dan is at 10,600. This is an unusual situation that we call a lock tie, mm-hmm. uh, meaning Dan is at exactly half of Kelly's total um, in second place. Kimberly's at 6,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category movie title characters. And the clue in this 2012 film set just before the Civil War, a German dentist declares that the title character's surname is Freeman. Kimberly responds, what is 12 years a slave? Uh, That's incorrect. I think that's the big neg bait answer Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Um, 12 years a slave was around then, um, fits in a number of ways with this clue but it's not correct but it doesn't matter she's wagered zero dan responds what is django unchained and that is the correct answer um i think german dentist is what uh helped me figure out django unchained versus 12 years a slave Mm. yeah christoph waltz is the 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 german dentist guy i remembered that character dan has wagered 3001 looks like he is covering an all-in from kimberly that is not the strategically optimal wager in this situation. My best guess is that maybe he misread the scores or or messed up his math and didn't realize that Kelly did not have a, a full lock game. Yeah. In this situation from second place, your best move is to go all in Mm -hmm. because if you get it right, then you have a chance of either winning or going to a tiebreaker. Right. Dan did not do that, so he lands at 13,601. Kelly responded, what is 12 years a slave? So he's incorrect. He wagered $1. Mm-hmm. Which he got a bunch of heat for on social media. I would say unmerited. If you're in the first place position in this lock tie situation, you've got a couple of choices. One is to wager zero. Mm-hmm. And hope that everybody else either misses or wagers too low. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is to wager a dollar. And then if you get it right, you definitely win. Right. You can go higher than a dollar if you want to. But but you wager something preferably small. Mm-hmm. So you're either saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to play for the win right now, or I'm going to try and win in a tiebreak. Right. And I think in most situations, you want to just go ahead and play for the win. Yeah, because you get to think about the final Jeopardy response. Yeah. You know, and Um, you don't have to worry about the buzzer. Yeah. If you are very confident that like, you know, that the category is not good for you and good for your opponent, (laughs) you know, maybe (laughs) you might want to try and push it out to a tiebreaker. (laughs) Right. Like if it it were like poets and poetry, I would be like zero. Thank you very much. (laughs) I I will go for the buzzer great quarterbacks of the 1970s no i'm going i will Uh, will take my chances yeah (laughs) yeah but uh kelly's move here um he got a lot of heat for and i i think it makes strategic sense 
I think Dan also got a lot of heat for for his wager. And yeah, uh, my guess is that just, you know, it's a disorienting situation. And he he probably realizes now there was some mix up. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to be too hard on him. Right. But if anyone's listening to this and, and, you know, preparing to be on Jeopardy, we do want to say in this situation from second place, go all in. Yeah. If you can play for the win, you should play for the win. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the if you if it was a total lock sure defend second place that's fine Mm -hmm. but yeah but if uh yeah if you have a chance to go for the win go for it absolutely and in this situation dan must feel awful because like he was the only one with the correct answer like if he'd gone all in he would have been the winner yeah yep yeah it's tough yeah but kelly played a good game um and uh and he's their winner with twenty one thousand one hundred ninety nine. so we'll see him again on monday Mm -hmm. so this is the point in the show where we take a break and remind you that we have a Patreon and that there's stuff on it. <laughs> and you can uh, you can check that out. Uh, you can support us financially at any level. And we appreciate it for those who do. You are helping us really be able to uh, operate uh, not at a deficit for, for this podcast, which is great. So you can check that out. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, we also want to encourage you to continue doing good for your community and for the country. We, we've mentioned blacklivesmatter.com and communityjusticeexchange.org in the past, and of course, those are still good places to go. Uh, I also want to mention this week, uh, you can go to GoFundMe and you can l- go and look up the Stop Asian Hate uh, section there. They have a variety of different AAPI uh, community organizations that they have kind of a, a large fund that you can donate to that could, will then go to those organizations as a whole or specific organizations depending on your uh, region or, or determination uh, so i suggest you go there and check that out if you are feeling that the recent increase in hate crimes toward our asian american and pacific islander neighbors uh, is an issue that you would like to uh, contribute to resolving mm-hmm. so. so there it is I realize that this part of this show always ends up as kind of a downer because it's like, man, there's so there's so much that we still have to do. Um, yeah, there but, sure is. But uh, we encourage you to do that. So. Yeah, no, that's important. I was at a, a vigil against anti-Asian American hatred last weekend where a number of neighbors kind of patted themselves on the backs and like kind of got up to got up to the mic and said well it's I'm glad to be here for the Asian community here in this community where there is no racism and uh, I think a lot of people feel that way about wherever they happen to live and uh, I think our our Asian neighbors will tell us most most of us are wrong about that Mm -hmm. there is there is bias and racism just about everywhere yep yeah that's that's an important thing right now and always all right well with that downer (laughs) uh, do do you want to do you want to take some deep dive guesses i do i do uh there there are a number of there are more than three that i think you might talk about but uh my first guess are you talking about mark felt and deep throat i am not okay are you talking about the Tivoli Gardens? I'm not, although I considered it. Okay. You want to talk about the Platt Amendment? I'm not, although I did look at that also a little bit. Okay. Um, no, I, I think this was one of your... It, this has been a triple stumper before, and I think you once guessed it when you were taking deep dive guesses. And so when it came up again as a triple stumper, I thought, you know what? I don't actually know a lot about this. I mean, I know hmm. kind of broad outlines, but 
fuzzy on specifics, so I'll, I'll look into it. This is from Monday's game. It's the organization's category at the $1,200 level. Founded in London in 1961, this group campaigns for a world where human rights are enjoyed by all. Uh, hmm. And that is Amnesty International. Okay. Um, yeah, I actually was surprised that they weren't that they were founded in 1961. I think of them as kind of a venerable institution. Mm, yeah, and was surprised that they're you know not yet that they're they're just now 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Amnesty International. I learned a little bit about it. Now you will too. It is an international non-governmental organization. It's headquartered in the uk founded in 1961 as we learned in the jeopardy clue it's considered the third oldest international human rights organization anti-slavery international has been through a number of name changes um, was known for a long time as the anti-slavery society it was founded in 1839 and the international federation for human rights was founded in 1922 and then amnesty international in 1961 it claims that it has over 7 million members and supporters worldwide. Mm. It was founded with a focus on what it called prisoners of conscience. Um, It has expanded its mission beyond that to campaign for a world in which every person enjoys all of the human rights enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other international human rights instruments. That's from its, uh, its mission statement. It it pursues a bunch of different kind of strategies and kinds of, you know, campaigns in pursuit of that goal, publishing reports and investigating situations, um, putting out press releases, sending delegations to inquire and advocate and apply pressure. Letter writing campaigns are a big part of Amnesty International's work, organizing public demonstrations, um, media and publicity work. I think most of their work kind of falls into into those categories. Um, Amnesty International was founded by English barrister Peter Benenson, who recalls that he was inspired to action when he read a newspaper article reporting that two Portuguese students had been sentenced to seven years of imprisonment in Portugal for allegedly having drunk a toast to liberty. That's what he recalls as his inspiration, but this is probably an oversimplification or or a false memory of some kind because he's told this story a number of times and um, people have gone looking for the newspaper article mm-hmm. um, and have not been able to find an article that fits this description during the time when he said he read it. But it's true to kind of the spirit of what was happening at the time in Portugal. There are a lot of similar articles reporting similar kinds of repression. Portugal was ruled at the time by the Estado Novo government of Antonio de Oliveira Salazar. Um, And it was was an authoritarian government, strongly anti-communist, suppressing enemies of the state. Um, And so Benenson thinks he recalls this specific story. They can't find it. But, you know, it's likely that he was reading a number of, you know, encountering a number of stories about, like, suppression of free speech in Portugal, um, even if this exact thing is not, isn't exactly correct. Sure. In any case, he was inspired by something he read, and he began working with his friend Eric Baker, who was an activist who was involved in the Religious Society of Friends, um, the Quakers, um, and in the British Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. 
and he started working with Eric Baker to to put together some kind of campaign around this. On May 28, 1961, the newspaper The Observer published an article by Benenson entitled The Forgotten Prisoners, which aimed to raise awareness and sympathy for those imprisoned, tortured, or executed because his opinions or religion are unacceptable to his government. Uh, the arg- article described these violations occurring on a global scale in the context of restrictions to press freedom, to political oppositions, to timely public trial before impartial courts, and to asylum. It marked the, the launch of Appeal for Amnesty 1961, a movement aiming to mobilize public opinion quickly and widely in defense of these individuals, whom Benes- Benenson dubbed prisoners of conscience. Hmm. The appeal for amnesty was uh, reprinted by a large number of international newspapers. And in the same year, Benenson had a book published, Persecution 1961, uh, which detailed the cases of nine prisoners of conscience investigated and compiled by himself and Baker. They used that appeal as the basis for the formation of a permanent organization, which they then simply called Amnesty in order to make this kind of a politically, like an apolitical or like an impartial organization, he recruited members of parliament from the three major British political parties uh, to be part of that organization. Um, and on September 30th, 1962, it was named Amnesty International. Uh, Amnesty shaped its work around research and campaigning to protect those imprisoned for nonviolent expression of their views um, and to secure worldwide recognition of Articles 18 and 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Amnesty established a library for information about prisoners of conscience and a network of local groups called Threes Groups uh, was started. Uh, Each group worked on behalf of three prisoners, one from each of what Amnesty defined as the three main ideological regions of the world, communist, capitalist, and developing. Mm. Those were their kind of their designations, and they wanted people working sort of across those three categories. Hmm. By the mid-1960s, Amnesty International's global presence was growing, an international secretariat and international executive committee were established to manage Amnesty International's national organizations. Each national organization is called a section, which at that time they had sections in several countries. The international movement was starting to kind of come to a consensus on core principles and techniques. Um, And there was a consensus that prisoners who had advocated violence and were imprisoned because of that could not be defined as prisoners of conscience. This actually would subsequently um, exclude Nelson Mandela from being considered a prisoner of conscience. Hmm. Um, So, you know, it's it's a little complicated, but this is something that they hold really firmly to that, you know, to to be designated as a prisoner of conscience, it really has to be about kind of your, your religious convictions or like completely non-violent, like speech or beliefs. Amnesty International's activities were expanding to helping prisoners' families, sending observers to trials, making representations to governments, and finding asylum or overseas employment for prisoners. Uh, Its activity and influence were also increasing within intergovernmental organizations. It was eventually given consultative status by the United Nations, the Council of Europe, 
and UNESCO uh, before the 1960s ended. In 1966, Benenson suspected that the British government, in collusion with some amnesty employees, had suppressed a report on British atrocities in Aden. Uh, Benenson became suspicious of government infiltration, And this was further supported by reports that Sean McBride, the former Irish foreign minister and Amnesty's first chairman, had been involved with a CIA funding operation. (laughs) CIA, CIA. (laughs) Uh, Great. Yeah, yeah. So Benenson resigned as Amnesty's president um, because of those suspicions. It has it has now been pretty definitively proven that Amnesty was secretly supported by the British Foreign Office, although it's not clear to what extent Amnesty was infiltrated, per se. Mm. In the 1970s, Amnesty International's purview widened to include fair trial and opposition to long detention without trial and to the torture of prisoners, which has become a major emphasis of theirs. Amnesty International drew together reports from countries where torture allegations seemed most persistent and organized an international conference on torture. It sought to influence public opinion to put pressure on national governments by organizing a campaign for the abolition of torture. As its membership continued to expand, it expanded its program to include work on disappearances, the death penalty, and refugees' rights. On a policy level, Amnesty advocated for the application of the UN's standard minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners and worked to secure ratifications of the two UN covenants on human rights. In 1976, the British section of Amnesty started a series of fundraising events that came to be known as the Secret Policeman's Balls. These were uh, comedy galas, including members of Monty Python, um, high-profile rock musicians. I think John Cleese was very involved. And uh, okay. and they were kind of really notable events that really increased interest and awareness of Amnesty's work and uh, garnered them a bunch of kind of celebrity okay. uh, supporters and advocates. I don't know. The, the use of the term secret police does not feel good to me. Yeah, but. it's I yeah, I think Is it supposed I, to be tongue was, in cheek? I Is think it like, it's supposed it's supposed to be tongue in cheek. I think it was maybe one of the Monty Python guys who who, it who probably, came that up with right. that. Like yeah. yeah. They had some they had other names for the first couple of events and then sort of the secret police those secret policeman's balls uh sort of caught on and was uh became kind of the title or for for the series for the series of events but yeah no i i hear you uh they were awarded the nobel peace prize in 1977 and uh the un prize in the field of human rights in 1978 there was a bunch of criticism from governments probably before 1980 but in 1980 um we have we have some incidents around this the soviet union alleged that amnesty international conducted espionage um, and the moroccan government denounced it as a defender of lawbreakers the argentinian government banned the 1983 annual report of amnesty international Um, so they're ruffling some feathers two major musical events were organized by Amnesty International in the in the 1980s to kind of raise awareness. The 1986 Conspiracy of Hope tour, which played five concerts concerts in the U.S. and culminated in a day long show, featuring some 30 odd acts at Giant Stadium, and the 1988 Human Rights Now World Tour. 
South African groups joined in 1992 and hosted a visit by Amnesty International Secretary General Pierre Sané to meet with the apartheid government to press for an investigation into allegations of police abuse, an end to arms sales to the African Great Lakes region, and the abolition of the death penalty. In the 1990s, they also published a couple of especially notable reports. Uh, When the State Kills was their report on the death penalty and Human Rights Are Women's Rights, which I usually hear that the other way around. But Well, maybe um, they were trying it out. Yeah. They were getting it started. They're workshopping it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) In the 1990s, they were also dealing with human rights abuses in the context of conflicts in Angola, East Timor, the Persian Gulf, Rwanda, um, and the former Yugoslavia. Amnesty International did not and does not take a stand for or against external military intervention itself, but they did and do raise questions around the selectivity of international action in relation to the strategic interests Mm -hmm. of nations who send troops to intervene in those kinds of conflicts, um, arguing that either intervention or inaction can be kind of a failure of the international community with regard to human rights and can be sort of more motivated by, you know, financial interests or other strategic interests yeah. than than human rights. And they're, you know, so they're sort of advocating for human rights as a as a worthy of being, you know, kind of the focus of that kind of intervention. Uh, there was a 1995 incident in which Amnesty International was trying to raise awareness about Shell Oil Company's complicity in the execution of Ken Sarowiwa, environmental and human rights activist in Nigeria. And uh, they were frustrated in that work because they couldn't get newspapers and advertising companies to run their ads on this topic because of those companies' involvement with the Shell Oil Company. Mm. Um In the 2000s, the scope of Amnesty International's work widened to include economic, social, and cultural rights, um, a big focus on globalization and the power of companies relative to nation states. They were also doing work around human rights violations in Iraq, in Israel, Palestine, Guantanamo Bay, a bunch of other places. They were, they're doing a lot. They were, they've been doing a lot throughout, throughout this time period. But those were a couple of things that were uh, especially active for them. And some of them I, I sort of, I remembered kind of seeing stuff from Amnesty International during that time. There was a 2010 controversy around the suspension of the gender unity head, Gita Sagal, who had publicly criticized Amnesty for its links with Moazam Beg. He was the director of the organization Cage Prisoners. He was a former Guantanamo detainee who had, after his release, become an activist around the issue of detention, in particular of Muslims. And that's worthy work, but he was also known to be supportive of the Taliban to some degree. Mm. Um, So this amnesty international leader was critical of the organization for kind of collaborating with him on certain things. Um, And she was ultimately suspended from her job. In 2014, they sent a delegation and did advocacy around um, police brutality uh, in the wake of Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, Missouri. 
and looking at their information from the last five years, they've been doing a lot and it's hard to say kind of what's going to end up being historically significant. You know, it's like it takes it takes a few years to figure out like what what is kind of important and significant and worth remembering and right you know when you look at what they've been doing for the last five years there's just like a lot of stuff listed uh but one thing of note is that a 2019 report found that amnesty international's headquarters have a toxic culture of workplace bullying which i think they're you know they've acknowledged and are kind of trying to work to address but oof Mm. not great and some major focus focuses right now for them are around uh, human rights abuses against Kurdish people, issues in Qatar, issues with surveillance technology. Hmm. There have been a lot of criticisms of Amnesty International over the years, um, including excessive pay for management, under protection of overseas staff, associating with organizations with a dubious record on human rights, and ideological and foreign policy bias. Uh, they've they've fielded accusations of various kinds around that, um, but one that come, seems to come up a lot is um, bias against non-Western countries. Hmm. And the most recent one is uh, in February of this year, 2021, uh, they stripped Alexei Navalny of his status as a prisoner of conscience. Oh. Um, yeah. So... They say they, they did a reassessment and found that some of the statements that he made that led to his imprisonment did, according to them, cross over into advocating for hatred, which, you know, according to their standards, makes him ineligible for their prisoner of conscience designation, although they do still consider him a political prisoner. There's a lot of accusations that they were influenced by Russian propaganda basically mm-hmm. yeah so that's that's the that's the most recent kind of amnesty international controversy it's hard to quantify amnesty international's impact you know because like how do you measure right yeah uh, <laughs> how do you measure awareness you know right. um, exactly, and, and like yeah. how do you measure it like like how much torture would have happened if they hadn't you know advocated <laughs> for policy change right like you, yeah it's, it's all speculation right yeah there's yeah. like no there's no counterfactual um but as of their 50th anniversary in 2011, when they, I found like a facts and figures report to celebrate that anniversary. At that time, they had conducted over 3,500 missions to research human rights abuses. They had published over 17,000 reports. Uh, they had sections in 68 countries. They had put out over 20,000 urgent action appeals to mobilize volunteers. An urgent action appeal is what they do when there is like a political prisoner or a prisoner of conscience who's deemed to be in immediate danger. And like they start like a letter writing campaign mm. immediately to kind of intervene in that. Um, yeah. So they, they had over 20,000 of those. And since they began campaigning to abolish the death penalty, the number of countries that had abolished and outlawed the death penalty had grown from 16 to 105. Uh-huh. Yeah. So how much of that is attributable to Amnesty's work is is hard to say, you know, but like they are they're they're pretty huge. They've done a lot. Obviously, they have some problems, but they're also, you know, a really significant organization and um and it was cool to learn more about them. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it was. I am glad to now have like information to put with that that knowing that it exists you know yeah <laughs> like, so yeah it feels it, i've always felt like it's very murky i was like they do stuff like they want the world to be better 
<laughs> That's kind of the thought. Yeah, I was like, they're they want to help people. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, cool. Yeah, so that's Amnesty International. Are you ready for a quiz? Oh, you know it. Yeah. Um. So I had a hard time figuring out like what an Amnesty International quiz would be. I guess I could have done like activists or something, but instead I decided to head in a different direction that lets me kind of um, do kind of a broad spectrum of topics. This is an inspired by the word amnesty. This is an A blank Y quiz. Okay, nice. I think one of these has the A blank Y in the question, um, but all the rest, the answer is either a word that starts with A and ends with Y or has a word that starts with A and ends with Y somewhere in the correct answer. Okay. All right, so A blank Y, a quiz. Compounds of it have been known and used since ancient times, including in Egyptian coal. Its name probably comes from the Greek for not found alone, but a procedure for isolating it can actually be found in Arabic texts from as early as the 9th century. What is this substance, the only element that fits the category? Oh, that would be antimony. It is antimony. Yeah, and it's not totally sure that the etymology for antimony is antimonos, mm-hmm. uh, which would mean not found alone. I, I found an, uh, an alternate possible etym- etymology that basically meant monk poison. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> but that's, that's uh, dubious. Cool. Yeah, all right, 10 points. Question two. An aviary is an enclosure for birds. What lives in a... In an apiary. Everyone knows that's apes. No, it's bees. Bees. It is bees. All right. Nice. Yeah, an apiary is where bees live. All right. Uh, So you're at 20 points. Question three. I think this is maybe my hardest one. A civil rights activist, Baptist minister, and close friend of Martin Luther King Jr., He became the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference after Martin Luther King died. I I know who this is, and I'm not pulling a name. Probably not going to get there. Anthony. It's not a bad guess. Ralph Abernathy. Abernathy. Yes. Yeah. I feel like he gets really eclipsed by Martin Luther King Jr. He was a very big deal, you know? Yeah. but somehow we've turned like the entire civil rights movement into like the story of one great man, you know? Yeah. Um, that might be purely accidental. That could also be intentional. Yeah. Anyway, Ralph Abernathy, he was an important guy. I, I knew you'd heard his name, but it's yeah. like one of those ones that can, it can be hard to pull. All right. Question four. Charlton Heston uh, who also played of Ben Hur fame? <laughs> ben Hur fame, yes. Uh, plays Michelangelo, and Rex Harrison plays Pope Julius II in this 1965 film about the painting of the Sistine Chapel. Oh, I'll give you a hint if you get stuck. Is it one word? It's not one word. I it is in so. a the blank and the blank format. Oh, well, is it? Okay, is it the agony and the ecstasy? It is the agony and the yeah. ecstasy. Okay, because I was like, I, well, I'm, I'm thinking of agony, but I... So agony is in there, so, okay. Yes. It works. Yeah, agony is what fits the uh, A blank Y mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
category. Yeah, the agony and the ecstasy. Uh, You're at 30 points. Uh, Question five. The top-selling tropical salsa artist of all time, this musician got a divorce in 2014 from Jennifer Lopez, not from Cleopatra, although any confusion would be understandable. Right. Uh, Mark Antony. Or Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony. Yeah. 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 He was like very popular when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Early teen. Like he was like uh, budget bin Ricky Martin. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's a great musician in his own right. I've since learned. But yeah, he was he definitely was like the Ricky Martin knockoff of like 1998. Mm -hmm. All right. So you are at 40 points. And the category for the final question, we'll call it life-saving mnemonics. Well, I'm an Eagle Scout, so I feel like I have to know this. So you are. I'd forgotten that. Bet it all. All right, for eighty points. In 2010, the American Heart Association changed its CPR guidelines from teaching the ABC mnemonic to CAB. In either case, the C is for chest compressions, Mm -hmm. and the B is for breathing. What is the A for? The A is for the airway. Yes, the A is for the airway. Checking the airway. Gotta Uh make sure it's clear. That's right. Yeah. And I I only found out when I was writing this quiz that they changed it from ABC to CAB, because I learned it as ABC. Yeah, because that's an easy thing to remember. Yeah. But if they want you to go in the certain order, right? Yep. Yeah, so the the reasoning for changing it is that circulating the oxygenated blood is, like, the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what the chest compressions do, is they, like, move your blood around so that you keep getting oxygen in your brain. And so they don't want people trying to save someone's life to get really stuck on checking and clearing the airway. Yeah, Check, check the circulation first, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the chest compression, like, p- you can actually survive for several minutes without taking a new breath if your blood is still moving. Mm-hmm. So that you keep, you know, getting oxygen in your brain. Yeah. Um, it, it is important, yeah. though, listeners, in case you ever do find yourself in that situation, don't just start chest compressions without checking for a pulse. Because if mm-hmm. they have a pulse, you're going to mess things up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Chest compressions break ribs and stuff yeah <laughs> they're they're not fun they're just they're yeah. they're, they're life-saving it's yeah <laughs> yeah well you got 80 points yes you eagle scout yeah nice. very nice job thank you that was very very fun emily the quiz <laughs> and and the deep dive that was very interesting thank you thank you and Thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Such a delight to share Jeopardy with you. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. Just tap the five stars. Just tap If, it. if you would, just, yeah. Or, or, or leave us a sentence or two. I think our last review was two months ago. But if you leave us one this week, we'll read it next week mm-hmm. on the podcast. You can check out our Patreon on patreon.com slash potent potables if you're interested and uh, you can let your friends know especially if they are into jeopardy about our podcast and where to find us that is right 
They can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpot.com. We will be back with you next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Quicker.